This episode is sponsored by Down to Earth Ice Teas. Our functional super teas are made from organic super herbs and adaptogens and contain no sugar, no preservatives, no food colorings, and range from only zero to 10 calories per bottle. Our beverages are USDA organic, kosher, vegan, non-GMO, and keto and paleo friendly. Finally, bottled beverages that you can truly trust. Check out drinkdowntoearth.com and use promo code PODCAST10 for 10% off your first order. Welcome back to the Down to Earth podcast. While we may not realize it, many of us are addicted to something. We are constantly surrounded by comforting vices that we often resort to in order to escape our reality. However, while this is common, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's healthy. In this episode, we will be joined by Nathan Kohlerman. Nathan is a coach and the founder of New Intention, where he works with his clients on overcoming addiction, setting healthy boundaries, exploring plant medicine, and getting to the root cause of their challenges. Nathan takes a deep-rooted approach to help his clients truly heal and find optimal wellness in their lives. This is an eye-opening episode that you don't want to miss. Here we go. Welcome to the Down to Earth Podcast. We're your hosts, sibling duo, Jonathan and Lorena. In this podcast, we'll be spilling the tea on all things health and wellness related. This podcast is designed to motivate you to take care of your physical, mental, and spiritual health. We'll be bringing on doctors, healers, fitness experts, business leaders, and innovators. Thanks for joining us in our mission of making the world a healthier, happier, and a more down-to-earth place. Here we go. Hey, Nathan, how are you doing today? I am doing fantastic. Thank you so much. How are you? We're doing well. We're very excited to be chatting with you today. Have lots of great topics that we're looking forward to getting your thoughts on. Awesome. Let's dive in. For sure. Well, I'd love to start off by learning a little bit more about your story and how you got to where you are today. Yeah. So, you know, my story could be told in a very long format, but I'll keep it reasonably brief. But I've told my story a lot and, you know, I've kind of been playing with the the components of it and really kind of dissecting the main points. And, you know, ever since a young age, right, growing up in a very, I'd say, challenging household, kind of chaotic, kind of dark, kind of painful, all within, you know, the same same spectrum of things. It was really interesting growing up and, and kind of finding martial arts at a very young age. I started martial arts when I was five years old and practiced for about 11 years until I got pretty bad into the uh, drug scene. So, being involved in gangs, being involved in drugs, being involved in, you know, a lot of different things that weren't really conducive to what society would deem as effective or efficient to, you know, quote unquote, make it. And, you know, through those experiences, you know, and being in sports and overcoming addiction, and then finally becoming sober and going into the military for about five and a half years, it opened up a lot of opportunities for me to kind of see where there were misalignments, where there were certain pains, certain experiences that I pretty much set myself up for. And there's no coincidence to any of it. I think it was all designed for a specific reason. So moving out of the military, the first thing that I found was fitness. And that's what I've been doing for now for about six, going on seven years now, professional at least. And I work with the body, optimizing mobility, movement, overall potential and performance for average people. 
ranging from 73-year-old scoliosis and stenosis to, you know, actually working with some pretty high-level athletes in the NFL and PGA and have been blessed to have the opportunity to work with a wide variety of people. And, you know, somewhere along the journey, I realized that most pain and most injuries and, you know, certain things that we experience on a day-to-day basis are more so on the mental, emotional, you know, psychological, somatic level. And that's really what ignited my interest to start diving into, you know, why do we become addicted to things and can we actually become addicted to pain and how do our addictions actually start translating and transmuting into other areas of our life? How does it bleed into our relationships? How does it bleed into our business? And how can we really uncover the root of all these things? And that's really where, you know, working with the body for so long, I've always tried to find the root of pain and the root of dysfunction. And it wasn't until, you know, I'd encountered somebody with fibromyalgia where nothing I did physically would help. And, you know, that moment was where I, I really started wanting to go deeper and wanting to understand, you know, human mind, how I wanted to understand the nervous system and how trauma influenced the nervous system and everything from our pain to our movement patterns to the posture that we hold each and every day and how to help people in a much greater and deeper capacity that I had ever thought would be imaginable. And that's what brought me to the work that I'm doing now, mostly working with men, helping men through addiction, relationships, and everything coming from a more trauma-informed and psycho-spiritual lens. That's great. And I commend you on turning a, a challenging childhood with lots of adversity into a really productive career where you're now helping a lot of people that who struggle with a lot of the things that you struggled with as well. And I'd love to know a little bit more about how you were able to pull yourself out of your drug addiction, because that's obviously not an easy thing to overcome. And for a lot of people, it's something that that haunts them for many years after that. But it seems that you were able to do so in a productive way. And now you're leading a super healthy lifestyle. Absolutely. And great question. And, you know, when it came to, you know, getting off heroin and quitting other various drugs through the process, you know, I was addicted to cocaine, Adderall, anything I can really get my hands on that would pull me away from the present pull me away from reality, pull me away from the pain in which I was experiencing that I wasn't even aware that was there. It was everything there, you know, and I, I chose to quit cold turkey. I chose to kind of run away in a way to the military. And as much as that had served me, it bled into other aspects. I started drinking more alcohol. I started, you know, becoming a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more codependent on relationships. And even to this day, you know, there are moments where I find that, the cell phone, right, becomes the addiction, the, you know, incessant need to always be moving becomes an addiction for me, you know, and it's really started becoming the catalyst for how, how I live my life and recognizing what things are, are provoking me or drawing me to run away, to avoid, to disassociate, to fight or flight or whatever the case may be. And really pulling myself out of that was healing myself through self-discovery and just inquiring right? Constantly asking myself questions as into why I'm doing the things that I'm doing and what the things that I'm doing are providing to me and what opportunities are being presented that I'm either consciously avoiding or subconsciously or unconsciously neglecting. And it's just been a process, you know, these, these addictions, right? Whether they were substance or behavioral in nature, I found that they were all just alluding to the same solution, which was trying to bring me back home. It was trying to bring me back into a state of awareness that I could 
under myself deeper. I can understand myself more clearly to where when I would convey a message, then it would be articulated in a way that made sense overall. Whereas most things, when I was on a substance or indulging in a behavior that pulled me away from my true self, my higher self, the more realer version of me, I realized that you know I really had to come back home to that. I had to start really seeking to understand and being gentle with myself in the process, if all that makes sense. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And I think what's really fascinating about addiction is we often think about substances like alcohol and drugs, but as you've mentioned, you can be addicted to other things, certain behaviors or pornography or whatever the case may be. And I think, you know, on a physiological level, yes, you can be addicted to a substance, but I think going back to that root cause, like you mentioned of why am I using drugs or alcohol, whatever it may be, what am I suppressing or what's the cause of my behaviors? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's kind of what we see in Western society, right? We see a lot of it now and with everything that's going on, where we feel as though we add something or supplement something, or if we need something outside of ourselves in order to feel better or in order to heal, you know, I feel like that also creates a layer and a lens of dependency to a certain extent to where it doesn't really become an empowering process. But when we start to understand the root of our core beliefs, when we start to understand the root of our addictions, the root of our emotions, the root of our thoughts, then we're able to extract it in a way that you know allows us to, when that next opportunity comes, to choose something differently, to choose something that serves us and everyone in our life better. Definitely. And I feel like nowadays, a lot of people are addicted to fear and addicted to sort of the process of not having to think for themselves and just following what the government is telling them or what people that they see on Instagram are telling them. And it's also, you know, living in an addictive state where you constantly feel the need to have this emotion in order to just go through your daily life. Oh, absolutely. And I'm, I'm really glad that you actually brought up this addiction to fear. It's very similar to the addiction of pain. A lot of people right now, you know, just over the conversations I've been having, like I just came off of a three or four day music festival And it's like every single camp that I would walk through, you know, there was some layer of fear there. There was some layer of uncertainty. There was some layer of pain being experienced that a lot of people couldn't explain. And the reality is, is that for the vast majority of us and most of our lives, most of us have lived in fear and haven't even known it. We're always anticipating something to happen. We're always looking at the worst possible outcome and being able to prepare for the worst. And you know, when we start surrendering to that and we start understanding and being able to feel that uncertainty, to feel that fear and to feel that pain, a lot of the times it just needs to move through the system, but we don't allow ourselves to. That's interesting. How would you recommend that people start to sort of shift their mindset when it comes to fear? Because for a lot of us that have lived life for several decades already, a lot of times you're already wired in a certain way and it's hard to make such a drastic change in the way that we think. So it would be some recommendations that you have for people who find that they're living their life fear-based and always sort of expecting the worst outcome in the situation. You know, anytime when it comes to the mind, and I'm a, I'm a huge proponent for somatic experiencing, so it's coming back into the body because the mind will, will tell its own lies, you know, but energy doesn't. The body doesn't lie. The body keeps the score. Fantastic book, by the way. And when we can come back into the body and we can be really present to what's happening, what we're experiencing, what we're feeling... You know, and what those thoughts are actually creating, we can start to shift out of the mind a little bit when we start bringing that attention through the breath, through the body, and you know, even through the earth. 
right? Getting barefoot into the ground and just being present with the earth, being present with whatever is showing up for you in the moment that allows you to seek to understand yourself a little bit better and why that fear is even existing in that moment. You know, and I think that as simple as it sounds, and again, it's easier said than done for most, is in my opinion, one of the most effective ways because there is no external influence. There is no other person on the other side of the telephone or on the other side of the room asking you those questions. It's you wanting to know and seek those answers and those solutions for yourself. You know, and I think with that, right, comes empowerment and embodiment to really take all of these things that we've learned and absorbed into our mind and to put them into practical application that allows us to to see and perceive the world a little bit differently. Definitely. And I think that takes a lot of introspection and knowing yourself and like those little steps, like you mentioned, putting your feet on the ground, focusing on your breath and not looking to external influences. Right. Now, I know you work with a lot of clients who are suffering or have suffered from addiction. And I'm really curious to know if there are just a few common denominators that you see amongst many or all of your clients. Absolutely. And I kind of break it down to to four different S's, right? So when you look at like the four S's of addiction, we look at most common denominators being a disconnection from self, disconnection from source, God, universe, spirit, higher power belief system, from society, or from service, which, which I replace with purpose, right? And how are we waking up in the world every single day ready to serve? How are we connecting to ourselves? How are we connecting to our societies and providing something that allows us to connect to something outside of us, but also reflecting that back within us? You know, and those are the most of the common denominators, which each of those categories can be broken down a little bit more in detail, of course, which, you know, I screen all my clients for. But once we understand where the disconnection lies, then it's pretty simple to actually start curating that individualized roadmap to recovery. Because a lot of my clients, they've gone through the 12-step program. They have gone through addiction recovery. They've gone to Codependence Anonymous, or they've sought counseling or therapy in a lot of different places. But I think one thing that was also there is that a lot of these systems aren't really individualized. I think that there are a lot of groups and a lot of organizations and a lot of protocols that do help people to a certain extent, but there's always something missing to where, yeah, we're not addicted to drugs anymore, but now we're, you know, suffering severely in codependency, right? And now it's really hard for me to even maintain a relationship, which then once things go wrong in the relationship, kind of feed back into them wanting to go do more drugs, right? So we can kind of see this like self-perpetuated cycle from a lack of understanding oneself. And when we can start to understand that and start curating that in a way that is empowering, then we can start using those empowerment tools or this empowerment process to really start filling the holes and the gaps where we start seeing those holes and those common denominators. And I think, like you mentioned, they're not really addressing the root cause. Maybe they may not be addicted to that substance or behavior anymore, but the root cause is not being identified. And I think we see that in our medical healthcare system in general, you know, we're just suppressing symptoms, but you're not really addressing what caused this disease in the first place. Yeah. And, you know, when you say that, I actually kind of bring me back. I literally just made an Instagram post about this maybe like last week, but it read that it's not the substance that we're addicted to. It's the familiar feeling that creates and perpetuates the cycle of abuse that we become addicted to. So although we get sober, we quite often seek the addictive cycle through other forms. And 
that's essentially what happens. You know, we see it a lot and that's why people go back through the recovery system or they go back into the 12 step or even maybe even always adopting and reaffirming the belief that I'm an addict or I'm an alcoholic, which again, kind of programs the mind to think that it's there, but in reality, it's actually what's underneath that, which I think if we seek to understand that a little bit more, we would see maybe less of an issue, you know, in society in general. And again, there's also a lot of quote unquote healthy addictions that exist. And I think that we see that with over exercising, over consuming things that we might assume are healthy for us, even though it's a better habit than potentially using drugs or an addiction to porn or other things, it's still an addictive personality that has to be addressed. Exactly. You know, and we have these addictive behaviors, we have these addictive personalities, we have an addictive mindset. Right. And it comes in many forms, whether it's psycho-spiritual or biophysiological, social, cultural, lifestyle, environmental. You know, it really comes down to at least what I believe is it, it, it's the regulation of it. Right. And that's essentially what our nervous system is always doing. It's just trying to self-regulate no matter what it's coming into contact to. It's always seeking the path of least resistance. And if we can start finding some type of balance or cohesive nature to all the things in which we're using, can we curate a plan that's actually more conducive to our health rather than just picking up exercising, but then overtraining and then winding up and resulting in an injury, which might actually circle back to the use of opiates or painkillers or whatever the case may be. How do we package these things in, a, in an effective and sustainable way that's conducive towards our overall well-being? And that's really where wellness comes into play, not just health and fitness, but really wellness in general. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's two sides of the pendulum and I think either extreme, it can just become a vicious cycle at some point. Now, I like that you mentioned some people who they identify as like, I'm an addict. And I like that you brought up that point because I think there's such a huge connection between how we speak to ourselves and also just the connection between the mind and the body and how powerful that really is. You know, this is actually something they they talk about in NLP, right? It's everything in which we speak, we affirm you know, the words that we use actually start calcifying in a system, right? And starts calcifying in, in the nervous system and our body will even respond. Even if you declare something when you say, or when I say, I'm an addict, right? I feel this resistance in my body. I feel this very heavy energy that's, that's kind of sticking and clinging on to me. But when I say that I am free, right, it has a completely different effect. And for anyone listening, even just having that simple practice, that's why Uses of affirmations are really powerful if right, we understand what a well-formed affirmation really is, which is normally a little bit more than just choosing the antagonist of what we're actually feeling. We're feeling sad, but we affirm that we're happy. You know, there's something underneath that sadness. So let's let's excavate that a little bit and then create a more well up, you know, well-formed affirmation, which is another technique that we can use. But you know, kind of going back to the topic of that affirmation of that verbiage, right? It's a lot more than just speaking it, right? It's walking with that. It's the embodiment of it. It's the incantation of it and being able to feel that fully which with each and every step that we take, you know? So if we walk through life, you know, one step at a time and it's that repetitive, my name's Nathan and I'm an addict, right? My name's Nathan and I'm an alcoholic. Now we're associating that our identity is actually attached to that. So at what point do we say, I am no longer an addict. I'm a free and sovereign being. And I have ultimate choice and creation over my own reality, right? And I think if we were to take that approach and start becoming more empowered 
and more embodied with who we are and what we are and how we serve the world without that energetically attached to our beingness, then I think it could create a substantial shift even in just someone's mindset from the start. And it's just such a small shift, like you mentioned. And I just think it's a daily practice because I think we've ingrained, a lot of us at least, have ingrained this negative self-talk or it can be slightly pessimistic at times. So I think just being consistent with it daily, I think can be really, really helpful. On that topic, I saw an Instagram post of yours, which I found was really interesting. It was when you had COVID and you said the first few days were really rough and you were kind of in that victim mindset. You felt very sick and you kind of just shifted your vibration and you noticed a reduction in your physical symptoms. So how would someone even begin to do this? Yeah, it was actually a really interesting process, right? Because that fear had kind of consumed me and my daughter was visiting at the time. So it was around Father's Day too. So I was just feeling really, really down and having to, you know, talk to her through the glass door or eat meals, right? Through a glass door, but still like try to figure out some line of communication to have us still connect in that certain way. It was what I had felt was debilitating, right? Because it wasn't just sickness. It was, it was complete disconnection. It was complete isolation. And, you know, what actually helped me pull me out of that was one connecting to myself bringing in the breath. And, you know, actually what I'd recognized too, was there was a lot of inner child wounding, right? Anytime I was sick growing up, I was always kind of left home alone, right? I felt as though I was being abandoned. I felt as though that people didn't want to take care of me or that I was beyond care of someone else, right? Where I was a burden. So I actually, you know, connected to those like younger parts of myself as well. And I started actually practicing more of the inner child work and being able to connect to that. And then even playing music, right? Playing music is incredibly therapeutic and having, you know, my handpan in the room and just playing for hours and hours and hours, I would notice a shift because I wasn't focusing on being sick. (laughs) I was focused on connecting to my breath. I was focusing on connecting to myself. I was focused on connecting to parts of me that may have been abandoned when I was once sick. And then being able to really move energy in a way that felt right for me, which was music, which was ecstatic dancing and shaking and, and, and just visualizing and feeling the sickness leaving my body. Right. And it doesn't have to be this very, you know, esoteric or, you know, shamanjelic type of practice. It can be very simple, be very simple as into, you know, how are we going to take this energy outside of us and how are we going to move it out and how can we move it out? That feels right for us. And that's really what worked for me. That's great to hear. And I think it's really empowering for people to understand that we really do have a lot more control over our health and well-being than we might realize. And doing things where we really shift our mindset could actually help us physiologically as well. Now, for anyone out there who hasn't heard of inner child work before, can you explain it a little bit? So inner child healing, inner child work is essentially, I want to say a protocol, but it's more of a practice, right? It's a practice that when we become traumatized, right? We can look at big T, little team trauma, ranging anywhere from shame, abuse, and neglect down to humiliation, or even just small things that we encounter, you know, on a repetitive basis, right? Whether it's post-traumatic stress or even complex post-traumatic stress, a lot of the inner child work is centered around childhood development. It's looking at our household. It's looking at, you know, different experiences in which we were children, where there was once wounding or trauma inflicted that 
we didn't really know how to handle at the time because we were just children, right? So being an adult and going back into, you know, previous stages of development as a child at whatever age, I found most of my healing occurred with my inner child work between like four and nine, four and 10. And even though we may not consciously remember these experiences, we can go back and we can actually start reframing, redeveloping and retraining the nervous system's response to familiar events that that might remind us of, of a certain time in the past. So when we talk about that inner child healing, it's being able to essentially reparent the fractured part of our psyche that was once traumatized or wounded by either a parent or a caregiver or even you know, in society through the school system, if you were bullied or whatnot. And it's being able to reparent that in a way and provide that type of healing and nurture that part of you that once needed it in the moment, but didn't know how to ask or what to do with it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And can these be micro traumas as well? Because I feel like a lot of people react really differently to different types of trauma. Absolutely. And I had mentioned like big T, little T trauma, Mm -hmm. right? And we're looking at anything from big T being like shame, abandonment, um, abuse, injustice of any sort. And more of those little T traumas may have been humiliation, right? It could be as small as you being two to three years old in the grocery store and your mom slapping your hand because you grabbed a can of soup and you weren't able to, you weren't supposed to, right? It could be very little small things like that because, you know, when we're children and, and we have these very abrupt, right, experiences that kind of freezes our nervous system, right? We kind of see where that may have been ingrained to where now when people tell us, no, it just does something, we just don't like it. Because the child wants to explore. The child doesn't know any better. The child doesn't know right or wrong. The child doesn't live in duality. The child lives in unity. There is no wrong, right or wrong. Everything just is. And the world is free to explore. And the world is free to love. And it is open to learning at all times. And it's always readily available. So in those smaller micro right traumas, we can start seeing where, oh, wow, I'm not allowed to touch. I'm not allowed to feel. I'm not allowed to explore. I'm not allowed to grab. I'm not allowed to really be curious all from that one little instance. And it's understanding that. Right. And I think a lot of people struggle with self-worth. And I think a lot of that comes from childhood. And I'm not a parent yet, but you mentioned you have children. And I'm just curious if you have any tools on how parents can really navigate that so that, you know, obviously you still have to say, no, you can't touch a hot burning stove, but are there, there ways in which you can do that, that really allow your child to grow and develop and hopefully not have all these self-worth issues. Yeah. I'm really glad you asked this because this is actually something I experienced with my daughter because I mean, even though the child has their own experiences as well, there's another amazing book called, you know, it didn't start with you and it kind of breaks down generational trauma. And even in my studies of Rohan, it kind of opened the realm of, of me also realizing that, wow, some of these beliefs and some of these feelings and energies that I have in my body didn't even belong to me. Some things were even passed to me through the womb, just based on the environment in which I was being created, based on my mother's energy, based on what my mother and what my father were thinking, feeling in the delivery room. And I just kind of want to preface it with that because this can be really, really deep. <laughs> but on a more simple note, right? one thing I do with my daughter is you know, I remember growing up, and it's also being very conscious and very aware of our of our own experience. We haven't really done the work, then of course it's gonna be really hard for us to do that for our children. But, you know, at least for me, being abused, banned, and whatever, all these 
different things that had happened to me, right? One thing that I always wish that I had when I was a kid was a father who cared, a father who asked me how I'm feeling rather than telling me how to feel or telling me what to do. Because I felt as though I, I didn't have an actual identity. I didn't feel as though I had a voice. I didn't feel as though I was allowed to feel certain things. Because if I did, that meant either one, I'm going to get hurt or two, someone else is going to get hurt. So I kept my mouth shut a lot. So one thing I do with my daughter is I just ask her every day, how's your heart today? How are you feeling? Right. And just asking her these questions that give her the opportunity to be like, oh, how do I feel? Right. Because if I can ask my daughter these questions on a daily basis, she'll learn to start, you know, developing that as the habit herself to where she wakes up and she can start asking, how's your heart today, Natalie? Right. And if she feels that, then she can just honor whatever she needs. Cause based on what she tells me and like how her heart's feeling, I ask her, well, do you need anything? Do you feel like you need any type of support? Do you feel like you're hungry or you're thirsty? Do you feel like you need to move your body or get in the sun? Like, what do you, what do you feel like you need? And I give her a set of options to choose from. Not a lot because, <laughs> you know, she's only eight, but, you know, I give her enough options to really help her with that own process. So eventually over time, she'll develop it for herself. That's great. And I think it's nice that you put the responsibility on her so that she really is able to understand from a young age that she has to sort of be more in tune with her feelings and know what she needs. And I think that'll serve her as she grows up and develops over time and becomes a a functioning member of society. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I feel like childhood trauma might be even bigger challenge for male population to unpack just because men tend to be a little bit more closed with their emotions and internalize more things. So I'm curious in your work and with all the clients that you have, if you find that it is sort of a little bit more of a challenge for men and how men that are out there that might have things that they need to unpack could slowly start to begin that process. Yeah, most definitely. With men specifically, you know, I think there are a lot of social and cultural limitations that contribute to this. Men have to be big, men have to be strong, men have to be the providers, coaches telling us from a very young age to stop crying and to rub some dirt on it, or whatever the case may be. And that's probably the main challenge, right? Because if I'm this softer person, or if I express myself, like, does that make me any less of a man, right? Is, is the question that I get quite often, you know, or the feedback I get quite often, I should say. And I think with men, I think the first step is acknowledgement, right? It's acknowledgement that we are human beings. It's acknowledgement that we have human emotions. It's acknowledgement that we have certain sensitivities. And it's also acknowledging that, yeah, maybe we didn't have the best childhood. And that's okay. And it's just giving that permission, I think, because in the space that I'm in and the men that I've worked with, and even the women who I've worked with, who's who have brought some of their partners into the equation, right, to help them further understand as well. So women hearing this will also benefit is giving them the permission that you're allowed to feel things and I'm not going to judge you. You're allowed to feel things and you're not going to be any less in my eyes. I just want to understand you, right? Because if we seek to understand and we're curious, again, like energy doesn't lie. Like if we're authentically curious, if we're genuinely concerned, for their health, for their well-being. And if we can also maybe even share a part of ourselves in the process, that normally creates what I would say is like a bridge of connectivity, right? And a mirror of relativity. And if we have connectivity and relativity at play at the same time, normally someone can sense that and they feel safe. 
right? Which is what I try to do with each and every one of my clients. And I think it's also embracing that masculine and feminine energy that we all have as human beings as well. I think that's really essential. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you start, you know, this is why I, I work a lot with like masculine and feminine energies in my work, whether or not I teach them what it is or I just use it myself. But, you know, if, if a man is kind of stuck in that hyper masculine state, right, he's going to maybe even not even be aware right? That he just wants more of a nurturing, softer presence, which, you know, as a man, right, I step into that. But then at the same time, they're also like, well, I may not have had the best model of a father, the best model of a man in my life, or maybe it was Superman on the TV being the example that I had because I was always home alone and all I had was the TV to keep me occupied, right? It kind of depends situationally, circumstantially what their experience is. And to open that space for them, to nurture them, to hear them, to receive them, to listen to them and care for them in a way that they may not have had growing up and then being able to reinforce it in a healthy way, using that masculine energy, using that assertiveness, using that structure, using that safety and support that allows them and keeps them also accountable because we all kind of you know, have these coaching figures and father figures. And sometimes the coaches were better father figures for most men than the fathers were. Mm -hmm. So it really kind of depends on who they are, what they've experienced, and also how can this be more conducive to what is that unmet need that they're seeking, right? Mm -hmm. That's really what I think it comes down to. It's what's the unmet need that they're subconsciously seeking that they don't know is available. Yeah. And I think that also brings up how important boundaries can be. I think, like we said, like our society kind of assumes that a male is going to be this strong presence and he's the provider. And I think that sometimes setting those boundaries of what you need, whether it's from a partner, from a friend, from a loved one is really, really essential in any relationship. Yeah. And I mean, with the whole boundaries thing, you know, it's like, we weren't really taught what boundaries were, right? It's kind of like, oh, here's the boundaries of the field. <laughs> right. But, you know, as children, we weren't really taught what consent is. Unfortunately, for a lot of children, they were taught what not consent is more than consent. And when it comes to those boundaries, whether they are cerebral or physical or energetic in nature, internally, externally, it's being able to understand, identify, and then really acknowledge what these things are for us and what feels safe. Because as human beings, right, we only really have two needs, safety and love. Everything outside of that is a presence, right? And I used to kind of go with Maslow's hierarchy of needs where we would see society and food and shelter and all these things. But I mean, you spend a week out in nature and all you need is water. You know, I would, I would have to disagree. So from a more very primordial and beginning of time evolutionary wise, right? We only really needed safety and love. That's all babies ever want. That's all children ever want. So how can we bring that to the table? That's a good point. Now, in terms of boundaries, what are some, I know you mentioned like energetic boundaries. Can you sort of do a little bit of a deep dive for anyone out there who isn't too familiar with these types of boundaries? Right. Yeah. I'll kind of run through each one, right? So a physical boundary. One exercise that you can do is placing, visualizing, imagining there's a bubble around you and then being able to identify how much space between you and the edge of the bubble feels safe. And then that's something that you can communicate to people. Like if you don't want to be touched, that's a boundary, right? If you want to be only touched in certain places, that's another boundary. If you need a certain amount of space in between you and another person in line, or if somebody's invading your personal bubble, which is what most people call it, that's your physical boundary. Your cerebral boundary, right? Are 
what I have found at least is the thoughts that we have. If you are starting to downward spiral, let's say you're thinking about an ex-girlfriend or an ex-boyfriend or an ex-partner, right? Whatever your preference is or whatever your designation is, it's being able to understand, well, I will think these thoughts, right? Or when I think these thoughts, this is the course of action I'll take. If I start to spiral with these thoughts, I will make the agreement and create a boundary that I will not perpetuate or project this onto my partner, but I'm going to sit and I'm going to reflect. I'm going to journal on this first before I bring this into a conversation in which I can communicate with this partner effectively, right? That can be a cerebral boundary. And then there's energetic boundaries, right? And this is especially important for practitioners because if we don't have clear understanding of our energy, how we feel, what our energy levels are at, what kind of mental, emotional state we're in before we go into a session, right? And let's say that we work with addiction and trauma like I do, right? If I'm feeling some of my stuff and then I work with somebody and their stuff actually intensifies mine, I'm of no use to this person. I'm not because I don't have an energetic boundary, which is why it's so important that practitioners, I believe, have a good insight to what their energy is and saying, okay, this is my energy. This is, these are my thoughts. These are my emotions. This is what I'm experiencing. I will not allow anything outside of this to impact or influence the way I feel. Or it could say, this is how I'm feeling. This is how I'm thinking. This is my experience. I will not allow any of this to be projected or pushed onto someone else. So before they say something or before I reflect and give feedback, I will identify if this is my own projected experience or if this is more so in a way that's going to benefit their experience. And that would be more of like an energetic cerebral boundary where you're actually tying in the energetic and the cerebral together to ensure that boundaries are established and and both sides are safe, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And I actually really like that you mentioned that I just graduated naturopathic medical school and our first principle is heal thyself. And obviously everyone's on a healing journey. You're not going to be completely healed as a practitioner, but I think that self-awareness is really important because I also find that the things that you struggle with as a practitioner, you know, some a coach helping others, you oftentimes face clients or patients that are going through something that may spark some, you know, an emotion or some sort of experience that you've had. Absolutely. And I mean, that's actually why it's actually really fascinating to me because most of the time, and there's a saying that goes around, I'm sure you've probably heard this, that normally the work that you're in is the work that you need most, right? Absolutely. (laughs) And if you haven't overcome those things, and that's kind of what we see in the the Western psychological system, right? People will go and they get the education, they get the degree, and they got all these, you know, certifications and licenses and stuff like that. But a lot of them have avoided the work. So now you walk into a therapy room and you have an unhealed person or unaware person just like blasting you with projections, right? It's just kind of like, this is not helping me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I experienced that firsthand, not all of them, right? But right. a good number of them, right? Because a lot of those boundaries weren't established and it's so super important, right? Especially when you're working with heavy material that, that someone needs to address and, and unpack in a healthy way. Now with boundaries, you know, we have a lot of people who are quote unquote people pleasers or are afraid to say no. So where would you recommend that those people start on setting energetic or cerebral boundaries? When I hear people pleasers, I initially from a more, you know, trauma lens kind of think of the fawn response, right? And which, which normally 
leads into certain codependent behaviors. So I would say the first thing, the first boundaries to establish would be with, with friends, family, and relationships. Because when we can start establishing boundaries in the relationships, we're not going to be seeking that codependency. Or if we're aware of the codependency, we can communicate, hey, like, I understand this is something that I, I do, right? But I'm, I'm also asking for a certain type of support, certain type of accountability. So if I do start doing this, sometimes I may not even recognize it. So if you see me doing this, please, like, call me out in a loving way. Tell me or reinforce to me or ask me maybe even, how have you taken care of yourself today? Something like that, because with people pleasers, and this is something I've experienced so heavily, right, (laughs) is the first thing I do when I wake up, I'm thinking about how can I serve the world? I'm not really asking how can I serve Nathan? And sometimes it's that simple boundary to say that I'm going to fill my own cup before I fill other people's, right? And something like that could actually do tremendous amount of work for someone in the the initial stages. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's funny because people would always assume that because I take really good care of myself, I'm selfish and I only think about myself. And it's actually the opposite. I've just known for many years that in order for me to be the best version of myself, I have to take care of myself first and make sure that I'm filled so that I could then be of service to others around me as well. Absolutely. You're putting your mask on first before you're helping others. So. Yeah, we've been uh, we, we've been programmed like this for a very long time, but somehow when there's another meat sack in front of us, that kind of goes out the window. For sure. Now, I know that you also work with plant medicine a little bit, and I'd love to get a little bit more insight from you on plant medicine, who might benefit from it. If someone is curious about it, where are some good places to start and sort of get your take on, uh, on who plant medicine could be beneficial for? Plant medicine, I will preface, is not for everyone. There are a lot of things that we must take into consideration before we start diving into these you know, arenas, we'll call them. You know, if we have suffered from any type of mental illness, if we have, you know, been prescribed any certain medications, if we have adverse reactions or experiences to other substances, these are all things that we want to take into consideration as well as family history. So they're not always for everyone. I don't recommend that you just go buy mushrooms from your local uh, neighborhood shroom dealer and just eat them on your couch one day. That could uh, <laughs> lead to some very adverse experiences. So and when we're working with plant medicine, where to start really, right? There are a lot of resources, whether it's MAPS or the San Francisco Psych- Psychedelic Society is actually who I study with and do some courses with and whatnot. And also, I mean, traveling and, and going to indigenous cultures, tribes, and sitting with them, learning about it and, and being shown the more proper ways, I'll say it, right? Because I think Western medicine kind of butchers a lot of things and commercializes it and kind of makes it sexy in a way, you know, but when it comes to plant medicine, where you really want to start is, is really looking at your intention, right? Why do you want to take this medicine? Why is it calling to you? Why does it interest you? Because it can help with a multitude of things. And there's a lot of different medicines, whether you are going to look at sitting with mushrooms, or if you're planning on incorporating and planting some LSD, or if you're considering MDMA-assisted therapy, if you're trying to go sit with ayahuasca or ibogaine, San Pedro, right? There's so many different plant medicines out there. It really depends on the intent, right? Because each one has specific purposes. Each one has specific powers, as I like to say. And you know, it's whatever also you feel safe with. So it's whatever you feel called to sit with. And being able to seek a practitioner, right? Seek a shaman, right? If, if you know of anyone, right? And being also very curious 
and also very careful at who you're contacting with these things because a lot of people will will say they do certain things but you know a lot a lot of the times it's it's practicing discernment and also using your own due diligence and doing your own research you know i think those are the places to start right and you know there's never going to be a, a perfect situation but if we can establish you know an intention if we can choose the proper setting if our environment is all considered then most of the time we we have very positive experiences you know if we prepare properly right because it can start anything with you know fundamental as i said before we kind of started recording a top-down approach to understanding our psyche to understanding what we're currently experiencing to understand you know what it is that we're feeling or struggling with and then being able to prepare in a way that kind of puts that on the forefront so where the medicine can do a more effective job to kind of surface anything that may not have been addressed in, in a more conscious state. I think that's a, that's really important, but above all, the most important thing is how are we going to integrate this medicine? Right. And it happened firsthand to me, right. If we don't integrate the medicine, if we don't understand what signs or what symbols or what thoughts or what the emotions that we experience mean, then a lot of the time we're going to have what I call painful hyper-awareness to where it's like, I saw my patterns. And I know I'm doing this, but I can't stop. And I keep doing this and I keep doing this and I keep doing this and I keep doing this, which just comes with more shame and more shame and more shame and more pain. So the integration component is by far the most powerful part of any process involving plant medicine is being able to interpret an experience and then create an actionable and objective plan to really help heal what the medicine actually exposed needs to be healed. And I really like that you bring that up because I personally have never experienced plant medicine, although I am very curious, but I think in general, a lot of us put so much emphasis and power, which again, it is very powerful on any substance, whether it's a pharmaceutical plants, but I think it's that actionable step or those steps that you're making afterwards that are really, really essential in actually creating change in the, you know, the life that you want. Yeah. hundred percent. And I mean, you know, that's why even if I have clients who are interested in microdosing, right? Microdosing is a is a popular topic right now. It's a really buzzy, buzzy thing to talk about, buzzy thing to do. And, you know, it's almost like every single person I meet right now is just like, oh, I'm, I'm microdosing and I'm asking, okay, well, what's the intent? How are you tracking it? How are you exploring it? How are you objectively measuring that it's working for you, right? Because we can also use these medicines as an escape. We can use these medicines as a way to supplement our natural and and balanced energy levels. That's actually why I had stopped microdosing, even though it may not be physiologically addicting in nature, right? It's the behavior associated, feeling as though I need to take a microdose in the morning to feel okay, or I need to take a microdose before this meeting to talk better, or I need to take this microdose before I go out so I don't drink as much, right? And it's just having that awareness, which is why, you know, I kind of also give my clients journals, right? If they are going to do microdosing, right? Which, you know, I don't supply, right? I, I, I leave that up to them. I'm like, hey, if you want to get it, you got to go buy it. I um, can't tell you where for obvious reasons, but once you have it, I can teach you how, right? I use it, right? Because I grind it down and I'll mix it with maybe some lion's mane or some other, you know, blends and I'll make sure I supplement things properly. But I also have a process, a ceremony. I have a journaling practice to go with it. So that way I can start, you know, moving the needle forward rather than just keeping the needle still and just making it look a little bit more blurry, right? <laughs> For sure. And I think, again, like you said, it's important to have a purpose as to why 
you're going to try it in the first place. I think a lot of times, not only with plant medicine, but anything in general, things become trendy and people do it just to do it. But I think especially with plant medicine, if you're going to embark on that journey, you have to have a specific reason as to why you're going to do it. Right. For sure. Now, I'd love to know a little bit more about your routine. I know that you live a very healthy lifestyle and I'd like to know sort of how you prep yourself for the day and how you uh, are able to live a, a productive lifestyle. So every morning, first thing I do, get outside, right? Look into the sun, right? Not directly because you'll burn your eyeballs, um, but looking into the blue space, right? Looking in the blue space, getting your feet in the bare earth, right? Becoming grounding, kind of, you know, tuning into the natural electromagnetic frequency of the earth, right? To kind of get harmonious and, and synchronized with, with nature. I think that's really important. That's, that's at least my practice is, is getting with the elements first. So once I'm with the elements, I'll come inside, I'll make sure I get my water, some lemons, some Celtic sea salt, and then I'll just have morning tea, morning coffee, whatever feels better for me. And I'll just give my my time that opportunity, I should say, I'll give myself the opportunity to explore, to ask, to inquire, to check in with myself. How am I feeling? What do I need today? What are the things in which I need to do? What are the things that I'm not going to do? Because I have a to-do list and a not-to-do list. I think both are very important. You know, example of that is, okay, well, I need to make these three to five calls today. You know, and the thing that I won't do is I'm not going to work past 7 p.m. That's going to be my boundary for the day, right? Just so that way I can conserve my own energy based on how I'm feeling earlier that morning, right? So exercise-wise, three to five times a week. I used to be an avid gym, avid gym goer, right? Six, seven days a week, no rest. And, you know, that burns me out. So now... I exercise and I and I move my body in different ways. I, I don't really have a set workout routine. I just ask my body what it needs before I walk in the gym and then I go and do it. And I feel into it. I do things that feel good. If I experience any type of pain, maybe I'll do, you know, some intuitive work on myself, maybe move around and kind of feel, you know, what might actually reduce this pain to a certain extent, or if it's something that I might some support might need some support with. And then, you know, from there I, I eat pretty clean. I intuitively eat right if i want a cheeseburger i'm gonna eat a cheeseburger i believe a lot more in the emotions that we experience while we eat more than the food itself and you know just ensuring that before i go to bed i just cut digital devices i'll read a little bit i'll allow that information to soak into my brain and then i'll go to sleep and try to get you know in between six to eight hours of sleep every day it sounds like an action-packed day. And I like that you mentioned that you also have a not-to-do list because I think a lot of us out there do make a to-do list every day, but I think it's great that you also have a list of things that you're going to avoid doing that day as well. Oh, yeah. That <laughs> is a game changer. One of my old business coaches gave it to me. And ever since then, it significantly reduces the amount uh, I burn out. Right? Of course I do because that's just my personality and that's just how I operate. But having that drastically reduce the chances of it happening, you know, more frequently. For sure. Now I'm curious because I know that you served in the military. Did you find that that experience gave you a lot of discipline and routine? Because it seems like your day is very detail oriented, which mine is as well, but I wasn't in the military. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it did while I was in, but then after I got out, I was like, I'm never waking up at 4.30 again. Like, <laughs> no, I'm never, I'm never doing that again. So it's actually in certain ways hindered it, but it provided me with some sense of structure because I had none before, right? I can't say that I didn't because it did, but now it's more of an intuitive process, right? If I don't wake up and if I don't do my routine, I don't force myself to do it because I mean, there's some days that I just want to sleep in, right? And sometimes my routine is getting that extra little bit of rest that my body needs 
because I have seven hours of clients back to back, right? So maybe that was, that is more needed than anything else. And maybe I can push all that stuff in the morning to later on in the day or at night if I feel like I need it, but I don't hold myself to any unrealistic or rigid standard where that actually, actually, it actually impedes my performance to a certain extent. Yeah, definitely. And I think listening, you know, listening to your body is really, really important. And it seems like you do that even with your food or your exercise and your sleep. So I think that's, that's something that we've all learned, I think throughout the years, how important it is just really listen to our bodies. Now I'm curious if there are any quotes or mantras that you like to live your life by. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Give me a few. As above, so below, as within, so without, as the universal soul. And those words have always reminded me that everything is as everything is, right? I can take myself out of comparison. I can really start becoming more present in the moment. I can reaffirm and remind myself that I'm connected to all, connected to everything and everyone. And everything in which I'm experiencing is the experience of myself. And being able to live my life in that way helps me reduce or eliminate any standards, expectations, comparisons that I may have experienced, you know, in the past, things that were really detrimental to how I were able to show up in a relationship or this pedestal that I placed myself on for a really long time in order to feel important. And that's just worked what's worked for me is is remembering that oneness, remembering that beingness, remembering the beauty and the harmony and the synchronicity of everything in the world mm-hmm. and how I'm a part of it. And that's very similar to the quote that I like to live by, which is comparison is the thief of joy. Mm. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Another good one. Now, are there any favorite books or series that have helped you on this quest for optimal mindset and lifestyle? Absolutely. Number one, the body keeps the score. That book has fundamentally changed my life just because it, it just, again, your body doesn't lie. Your body has all the answers that you need in front in that within it. And, you know, some other books, I would say, um, let's go with like two more. I kind of mentioned one earlier. It was, it didn't start with you. And then the third one is the mastery of love by Don Miguel Ruiz, which really breaks down some very simple core concepts of love as you know, I've never really known what it is, but that was like the gateway to like what it means to like love myself and what it means to love another person and how to just accept the world for what it is. Yeah. I read the mastery of love. That's a really good one. Now, a question that we love to ask all of our guests is if you could have tea with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Carl Jung, because (laughs) for very obvious reasons, you know who Carl Jung is, but just to sit down and have tea or coffee with, with the man who discovered all of our neuropsychic archetypes and really understanding what the subconscious is to ask him those questions that maybe I wasn't able to get out of his red book or out of the blue book, out of his journals that he wrote or the encyclopedias. I'm a, I'm a huge Jungian. So anything on psychology, archetypes, the subconscious mind, and how we actually, you know, form beliefs and how our shadows are created and how they show up is just fascinating. So I hands down Carl Jung. Yeah, that would be a fascinating conversation. 
Now, for anyone out there who's going to listen to this episode that wants to learn more about your work, what you do, and where they can reach you, where are the best places for people to find you? Yeah, so they can find me almost on every social media at Nathan Kohlerman, just my name. So Instagram, TikTok, Clubhouse. I actually host some rooms on addiction. I host some rooms on overcoming adversity and overcoming overcoming pain, how to manage pain, how to mitigate pain. And of course, you know, Twitter, I put up some snarky stuff. So anybody who wants to get a good laugh, they can go there. But then my brand, New Intention, N-E-U, intention.com is where they can find me on my website. And then pretty soon I'll have NathanKohlerman.com up for speaking engagements and you know also some courses and experiences. Amazing. Well, we want to thank you so much, Nathan, for joining us. That was a really great conversation. And I think it's going to help a lot of people. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Of course, that was great. Keep up the amazing work that you're doing. You as well. You as well. Thanks for joining us on our episode with Nathan Kohlerman. Nathan shared such valuable insight with us on the common causes of addiction and the importance of healing the root issues rather than just finding quick fixes. As always, if you have any questions, you can email us at podcast at drinkdowntoearth.com or get in touch with us on our Instagram at drinkdte. In the meantime, stay healthy and stay hydrated. Cheers. Now it's time for you to go out there and do at least one small thing to better your health today. Always choose to make your life a healthier, happier, and a more down-to-earth place. Until next time. Cheers to good health.